Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, it's Brendan here. We've got a brilliant episode for you today. Rod Little made a triumphant return to the show, and better yet, we recorded it live on Zoom, complete with an audience and a Q&A. It's a great conversation. We talked about the culture war, labor, Islamism, and much more besides. And it was our first live event since we launched Spike Supporters, our online hub for spiked donors. Spike Supporters were able to attend this event absolutely free. And this wasn't a one-off. We will be announcing new events very soon, and Spike Supporters will always get advance notice and free or discounted tickets. So if you'd like to come along to events like this in the future, why not become a Spike supporter today? It is really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters and set up a regular donation of £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year. On top of events, Spike supporters are also able to comment on articles and get discounts on everything in our shop. So if you like what we do and want to help fund our work, Spike supporters is definitely for you. Once again, the address is spiked-online.com slash supporters if you'd like to sign up. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Don't say, Brendan, that there's anything Keir Starmer can do. As soon as you drop to his knee, that would have lost him 400,000 votes. Like that. All the time he is losing votes. All the time. And there's nothing he can do. He can't renege on that, because if he does, then he loses the very seats, which are the only seats which his party are winning at the moment, which is in central London, central Manchester, central Cambridge, Chipping Norton. Chipping fucking Norton. <laughs> you can see that it's, it's hardly to the Finland station, is it? Welcome to this very special live recording of the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my very special guest, Rod Little. Rod is very popular on this podcast, so popular this is his third or maybe fourth appearance. He's been on a lot. Rod doesn't really need an introduction, but we'll give him a brief one anyway. He is a columnist for the Sunday Times, The Spectator, The Sun. He is a fly in the ointment of the smug middle classes. He is not afraid to speak his mind on a variety of issues, and he is not afraid to stir up controversy where controversy is needed, which is why he's popular around spite. Rod, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, mate. Rod, the first thing I want to ask you is whether you have taken the knee over the past couple of weeks, whether you have <laughs> partaken in this incredibly important ceremony that our footballers have been doing on TV every other night. Yes, yeah, you'd be surprised at the answer, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, it's remarkable. The idea that this taking the knee is something that the, 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 the footballers, the England footballers are doing in order to redress racial inequality is an absurdity. Um, we've already seen that Scotland have said that they will take the knee, but only when they play England. <laughs> so it, clearly it's nothing to do with race. It's to do with the allure proper and the vanity project and grandstanding and virtue signalling that the FA and Gareth Southgate and probably some of the England team uh, are engaged in. And indeed at every single game <laughs> where people have taken the knee, there has been booing. And mainly, in, in almost every case, the majority of booed. I mean, the idea that people are behind this is an absurdity. And it's become increasingly absurd during the European Championships, where um, two clubs have just three, three teams have taken the knee so far um, England, Wales, and the perpetually neutral Swiss. Uh, 
no one else has. So is the implication, therefore, that the Ukrainians and the Italians and the Turks and the Croatians are all racist? Is that what we're meant to think? Yeah. Are the Scots racist today, because they didn't take the knee yesterday, but redeemed and <laughs> uplifted to the nirvana of a, of, of a racially equal heaven on Friday when they will bow before the England team. It, it has become ludicrous. And I'm a big football fan, and what I want to do is, is for the Euros to get on and to cheer my team on, which is, which is just about England. It's always been England, uh, though I have a hankering at the moment for Hungary. Um, uh, and, and just forget all this rubbish. They shouldn't be doing anything at the start of games. They're footballers. Why are sportsmen being co-opted into this incredibly straightened and authoritarian political correctness which we have? I don't get it, Brendan. And well, I know I you've, written very, you've written very, uh, very cleverly and very rightly on the subject, so I know it's, it's no news to you. <laughs> well, I want to uh, dig down with you what you think is behind the booing, because, of course, the first people to boo were your beloved Millwall. No, they weren't. Fellow Millwall no, fans. No, that, they weren't. No, no, they weren't. Who was no, What's behind the booing is an absolute loathing of Black Lives Matter, the movement. Not of racial equality. Uh, people aren't booing because they are Nazis or racists. The first booing occurred at a, 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 a soccer game between <laughs> uh, Dallas and somebody else. I forget who the other team was, which was in June of 2020. Mm. And these were the first people who'd been allowed into a game, um, and they booed. Uh, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, the, the English football season started, and no one was allowed in to watch any, any games at all. And then at the first weekend that the people were allowed in, Millwall played, I think it was Derby County, awful team, uh, awful people, really, uh, played Derby County. Um, and indeed, all the Millwall fans booed. Uh, but they also booed at Colchester, uh, who were playing that day, and they booed at West Ham in the London Stadium, and they booed at Chelsea. So whenever it's been brought in, people have always booed. And the reason they booed was very simple. And there was a beautifully written uh, post on, on a Millwall fan site which said, look, you, you know, we've had black players at Millwall since... 1970, <laughs> long before the Guardian editorial meetings had any black people in them, uh, long before then, long before there were any black members of the judiciary uh, or black social workers, or etc. We, in the working class districts of South London, we were first, you know. Um, we have nothing but support for racial equality. We are not racist, but we loathe Black Lives Matter. And it was put very simply, and everyone agrees with that. And I think, I think if you spoke to Gareth Southgate and said, this Black Lives Matter thing, mate, you know, abolish capitalism and the nuclear family, how do you stand with that? Um, he would say, no, of course I don't stand with that. He's tried to distance the kneeling from Black Lives Matter, as has CFA. But you can't do that. It's a bit like me going like that and saying, no, no, it's not the Nazi salute. It, it's moved on from there. It's, <laughs> it's, just a, it's just an expression of love and togetherness for people. You know, it's an absurdity. And it would never have happened, Brendan May, as you well know, uh, were enough for COVID. None of it would have happened. Absolutely. Well, I th that's one of the most striking things, the fact that as soon as fans... I mean, during COVID, during lockdown, there was kneeling every single week, yeah. Nothing happened. There were no fans. It was just silence. As soon as the fans were let back in, they registered their disapproval. And I want to ask you why you think there is this rush to depict the booing as racist. I mean, we almost seem to be reaching a situation, as you know, everything these days is racist. But we now seem to be reaching a situation where to be working class in particular is to be racist, which is Ironic yeah. for exactly the reasons you've outlined, which is that football, a predominantly working class sport, has been racially equal for far longer than most other institutions. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, 30% of professional players are black. 
They're worshipped by kids. They're cheered by football fans. You know, England fans booed the taking of the knee the other day and then cheered to the rafters when Raheem Sterling scored. So given that all the evidence points to the fact that Britain is a more tolerant, racially tolerant place than most of the rest of Europe, in fact, why do you think there is this rush to say that any football fan who boos or does anything we disapprove of must be a racist scumbag? It is, as you've said, a class battle. And in football, it's been a class battle for, I would say, around about 25 years, 1996, and the bourgeoisification of football, uh, sometimes known as the Charltonification of football after that team in South London, which isn't Millwall, uh, which has a slightly different ethos. Uh, you could call it the Dulwich Hamletization of football as well. They're another team which waves its LGBTQI flags around all the time. Uh, it's a war against the working class, and it's a war against the working class from the same liberal elite which waged a war against the working class over Brexit. It is exactly the same. There is no difference whatsoever. They think that working class people are coarse, stupid, uneducated, racist, and, uh, uh, and, and they need to be changed. Uh, <laughs> they must be changed. And football's a, a brilliant example of it. Because, of course, as you say, football was once a working-class sport. When, when you know, the working man could go along on a Saturday uh, afternoon and howl abuse uh, and be with his mates uh, and not act in the straightened way that the middle class expect people to act, the, the, the close-buttocked way that, that the middle class expect people to act. It's very funny, about, about 10 years ago now, um, there was a game between Millwall and Brighton at Millwall, um, and a Brighton sociologist, presumably at Sussex, I can't remember if it was Sussex University, uh, took a load of students along to watch apes in their natural environment, moron, working-class, Millwall apes in their natural environment. And it's a study the way they behave, to look at the way these, these pigs behave. The remarkable stuff. At the same time, <laughs> a national newspaper sent along a reporter to a Millwall-Brighton game, uh, uh, a black guy who reported that he was appalled that uh, the Millwall fans were singing Sea Kyle, Sea Kyle throughout the game, failing to recognise that it was actually the Brighton supporters singing Seagulls, Seagulls, Seagulls. <laughs> and so we've had to put up with this for countless years, this idiocy, this condescension, the bullying, um, and so it goes on, so it goes on. I think that's a that's a very important point. The, the irony of a lot of this stuff where they are constantly branding working class football fans as racist, the irony is that there is a there's a racial undertone to their hatred of working class football fans. You know, they will often yeah. refer to them as knuckle draggers. They will look upon them as this kind of different breed who needs to be studied and analysed, a herd, a herd of people doing stupid things. There is this kind of racial uh, drive behind some of that hatred. But I wanted to, just to bring the... No, but hang, on, hang on a second, and there's also the other side of the, of, the, of, the, of the coin, which is that they are also racist towards the very black people whom they're supposed to be supporting. They treat them as a kind of client group, sometimes treating them as children uh, who are perpetually victimised and not capable of, of standing up for themselves uh, and devoid of hegemony, devoid of of purpose and so on. And, and I, I find it incredibly patronising. And I, I suspect more and more uh, black people will find all this stuff incredibly patronising. Uh, and just briefly, the most eloquent stuff on Black Lives Matter and the kneeling came from a, uh, a player, Nottingham Forest player, Lyle Taylor, who used to play for Charlton, very good striker, uh, uh, who's of mixed race, and said, I'm not having anything to do with this. It's corrosive and divisive. We are supporting an appalling organisation, and, the, and the, the Football Association should have thought more about it before they did this. Absolutely. OK, just to bring this forward to other issues uh, that relate to the booing of the knee, I wonder if you, you mentioned Brexit there, and it's the same kind of pushback. You know, the pushback we had against people who voted for Brexit is they were low information, they were thick. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. stupid northerners. I, I loved it at, at, at the countdown to our official leaving of the European Union in, in Parliament Square. Someone, some lady was holding a placard that said, this stupid northerner knew what she was voting for, which is my favourite political placard of yeah. all time. Yeah, but it, it, it's the same kind of idea, you know, the ignoramuses, the uneducated, the, the thick, the ignorant. Uh, I, I wonder if it, one of the things that worries the kind of, chattering classes or the woke elites or however we want to describe them is that we are living through a bit of a revolt against deference you know you have fans booing a literal genuflection to the to the politics of identity you have uh, vast numbers of voters rejecting the european union which is apparently the most wise institution on earth you have this pushback across society and i wonder if do do you feel positive about the current moment in terms of the fact that we seem to be living through a pushback against deference against the idea that we have to kowtow to these people who know better than us up to a point yes um and i think things have changed a little bit in the last six months as well um i think there has been a a kind of shift in the way we think about these things. And I, I think, I mean, the obvious thing to say is, I think the public, the vast majority of the general public, aside from maybe, I would put it at about 16 to 20%, these are people who uh, are uh, actually giving seats to the Labour Party, you know, in Chipping Norton and in Putney uh, and in Islington. Um, so, so I think there is that, I think there is that 16 to 20% affluent metropolitan percentage of the population who who are on board with all this crap um but i don't think that the, the general public has ever been on board with this no. crap otherwise you know i wouldn't have been a member of blue labor 10 years ago or supporter of blue labor 10 years ago nor the social democratic party now i think that's always been there but i think there's a growing realization and this is the thing which is this is the crucial thing because this is, because culture takes so long to change uh, our culture now has, has been moving in one direction for 40 years. But I think it's beginning to turn back. And you can, you can see it turning back by the, the speed with which various institutions and corporations and government offices are telling Stonewall to get lost. Mm. You know, that is one way. Uh, I think you saw it as well with the, with the high court decision uh, on that very brave uh, transgendered girl who actually said, you know, uh, I was too young to give my consent for this, and the, the, the courts agreed. And I think you're seeing it a little bit in in the words of Liz Truss and Priti Patel, and when he's in the right frame of mind, even Boris Johnson. Uh, I, th- I think there is a general, we get this, from more and more institutions. But there are so many more institutions to change. You know, Brendan, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. When you look back to the mid-1970s, um, the BBC was conservative. You know, it was a conservative institution. And all the popular entertainers of the day were conservative. The two Ronnies, Morecambe and Wise, uh, Jim Davidson, Jimmy Tarbuck, all conservative. And you may remember, or you may not, that massive concert that Margaret Thatcher held, uh, or was held for Margaret Thatcher before the election, I think, 83, uh, when it was virtually the entire uh, establishment of light entertainment was there behind the Conservatives. So the BBC and entertainment was conservative. The Church of England was conservative. It was a conservative institution. The judiciary was conservative. The teachers an interesting point. I remember when I worked as a uh, speechwriter for the Labour Party in the very early 1980s, uh, saying we should do something about the teachers' strike and support them, and my boss saying to me, fuck them, they're all Tories, which then they were. The Mm. teachers tended to vote Tory. So that's been the massive shift, a massive shift um, uh, over the last 40 years that all of that lot have become kind of liberal they're certainly not left-wing they're liberal um and we're now beginning to see the kickback against that and one would hope though i'll be dead before it happens that over the next couple of decades we might you know actually get back to a it's 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 thesis antithesis synthesis it's proper marxism this is the way this is the way we move in society 
Um, you know, the the uh, the antithesis was this uh, massive movement towards the left from all our institutions in the in the eighties, nineties, and uh, current century, uh, and the synthesis will be uh, 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 an accommodation by which we don't uh, make homosexuality illegal. Um, you know, uh, we we don't still have a colour bar for people who want to get into the Welsh Guards or into a, a big city institution, but we get rid of most of the shite which has been accompanied the, the latter stages of this movement over the last 15, 20 years. Listeners to my show will be familiar by now with The Great Courses Plus, and I have some exciting news to share about it. The Great Courses Plus is now Wondrium. Wondrium is everything we know and love about The Great Courses Plus and so much more. Wondrium provides fantastic video and audio learning experiences. We can still stream all of our favorites from The Great Courses Plus, including videos made with National Geographic, the Smithsonian, History, the Culinary Institute of America, and other great institutions too. And with Wondrium, you'll get access to so much more enriching and mind-blowing content. There are new formats that you can watch, like short-form documentaries, and new collections to choose from, like Wondrium Originals and How-To Videos from Craftsy. All of this comes at no extra cost. I've just enjoyed watching the cryptocurrency craze. This Wondrium original film will get you up to speed on all the fuss about Bitcoin and other new currencies. I was thrilled to finally get a balanced expert view on such a controversial and complex topic. I can't wait for you to experience Wondrium. Prepare to have your mind blown. Sign up now through my special URL to get this great offer, a 14-day free trial of unlimited access. So go now to wondrium.com slash Brendan. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Brendan. Wondrium.com slash Brendan. So these institutions and organizations, which uh, in your words have shifted left, I think one of the one of the most striking things about them, one of the most important things, is how much they are willing to denigrate the country, how much they are willing to say Britain is essentially a bit of a hellhole. And I'm just thinking about when the Sewell, the Tony Sewell report came out, and there was this extraordinary reaction because you know this report said. Britain is not actually full of horrible racist scumbags. It's not such a bad country. You can make a good fist of it, whatever background you come from. And there was this uh, ferocious response from exactly the sections of society that you're talking about. So why do you think they are so wedded to this view of the country as being completely screwed up, a complete mess, full of scumbags, full of racists? What do you think drives that kind of view that they have? Their existence depends upon it. Mm-hmm. Their living depends upon it. You cannot, you cannot be in the Labour Party as it is at the moment and buy into Tony Sewell's excellent report uh, uh, because it takes away <laughs> your raison d'etre. Uh, and the raison d'etre is no longer uh, looking out for the poorest people in society uh, and trying to, trying to uh, ameliorate the appalling, uh, the appalling gap in income the appalling differences in wealth between the rich and the poor, between North and South, between East and West to a degree as well. Um, it's no longer about that. It's now about these various identitarian ideas, which, which are frankly, in the, in the grander scheme of things, of no consequence whatsoever when it comes down to when it's matched up against class. You know, class is the class is a divide. It always has been, and they're all middle class. You know, it's it's interesting when you look at, at, at the at the BBC. When people say it's left wing, it has a left wing bias. It doesn't have a left wing bias when it comes to taxation. It doesn't have a left wing bias when it comes to nationalisation. It is. It is not. These these people know what side their bread's buttered on. You know, so they are they are able to cleave to this sort of liberalism, um, uh, whilst being extremely affluent, white, or almost entirely, uh, southeast and metropolitan. Uh, and feel better about themselves because they they have these little client groups to fight for, whether they be uh, people who are transgendered or whether it be black people. 
I think that point about class is actually really important because it strikes me that so much of the contemporary culture war and identity politics more broadly is really a class war. It's a class war in disguise because what you have are the professional managerial elites looking down their noses at the lifestyles and the beliefs of working class communities in particular, and often doing more than looking down their noses, actually interfering in those communities and reprimanding people and telling them they shouldn't vote this way, they shouldn't parent this way, they shouldn't think this way. So the culture war, I've always thought, is a class war kind of in drag. And on on that question, I wanted to ask you about the Labour Party in particular and how it shifted from being interested in working class people to being absolutely contemptuous of working class people because people are often surprised to hear that you come from the left you grew up a labor person you're now an sdp person how do you describe what has happened to the labor party how it made that journey from being founded to represent the working classes to having this complete sneering attitude to working class people today it's it's interesting. I mean, it began, I suppose, with uh, with Mandelson, Campbell, and Blair, um, in that uh, they looked at the previous election results, 83, 87, 79, and to a degree 74, where that process was beginning, um, and saw that, that, that what they thought of as being the blue-collar vote could no longer could no longer uh, sustain a Labour government. It it, it wasn't enough to get the Labour Party over the line. And that was the explicit plan of of Peter Bandelson and uh, Roger Little and all those people who were associated with the Blair Project, which was they had to reach out to the the middle class. Uh, And and kind of some of it worked. I mean, in in some ways, they, they also reached out to the aspiring working class who no longer considered themselves working class, uh, but who probably these days are now more in that bracket. Um, and so, so that was the start of it. But it's as ever the case with political and, and cultural means that, that it's very, very difficult to stop them once they've started. And the Labour Party therefore drifted further and further and further towards that redoubt of, of, not raising taxes, of not nationalising, indeed of privatising, uh, which Blair did, um, uh, of, of, of shedding the red flag, of shedding every blue-collar element which accompanied the Labour Party. And so what you saw over the, the, the following two and a half decades, from 96 onwards, um, and I remember talking to Tony Blair in 1996, I had lunch with him, uh, in in Islington, <laughs> of course, uh, in Granita, I think. In fact, <laughs> I, I asked him about things, uh, what things were up for grabs. You know, wh- he was trying to change the party. You'll get rid of clause four. You've got to get rid of clause four. Everything's up for grabs. Could he? He could even at that point consider uh, uh, being in favour of capital punishment. He said everything is up for grabs. Everything. In other words, the party kind of didn't stand for anything. Um, and then over the, 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 the following 20 years, because that process had been set in train, working class voters began to desert the Labour Party. And they began to desert the Labour Party at the turn of this century in small numbers, partly uh, horribly uh, in some cases in, in, in the Northwest for the BNP, uh, who they felt were looking after their interests better than the Labour Party were. Uh, much more, uh, uh, obviously, uh, by about 2010 for the United Kingdom Independence Party, for Nigel Farage's UKIP. Mm. Uh, but all the time they were drifting away. And more more and more often in the northern areas, um, if they're largely to independence, you know, the number of independent councillors uh, in the northeast, particularly, is rocketed. Yeah. Uh, they're all SDP, mate. I'm telling you, they don't know it yet, but they are fucking SDP. <laughs> um, uh, my mate Anthony High, who's the deputy mayor of Middlesbrough, I, there's not a thing we disagree about. You know, th- these people are basically old-fashioned Labour who believe in, who know that there's a class war, who believe that class war needs to be to be fought, uh, and who don't go along with any of the rubbish, the identitarian rubbish 
that, that the Labour Party currently goes on with. But the Labour Party has been pushed into that corner. And I don't think, Brendan, there's anything that poor Keir Starmer, who I think is quite a nice bloke, that there's anything Keir Starmer can do about it. Because, you know, as soon as he dropped to his knee, uh, whenever it was, what was it, about eight months ago now, that would have lost him 400,000 votes. Like that. You know, like that. Um, he goes to a church, I think a British Caribbean church, and then later finds out that they uh, aren't terribly keen on gay adoptions and stuff. So he castigates the church, writes it off. All the time he is losing votes, all the time. And there's nothing he can do. He can't renege on that, because if he does, then he loses the very seats, which are the only seats which his party are winning at the moment which is in central London, central Manchester, central Cambridge, maybe, um, Chipping Norton. Chipping fucking <laughs> Norton. You know? Toll puddle martyrs. <laughs> I mean, you can see it's, it's hardly to the Finland station, is it? You know? <laughs> I think that's, that's absolutely right. You know, I, my main emotion for Keir Starmer is, is pity, really. But the, yeah. I think... To add to your list of things that he is uh, uh, not doing particularly well, he also came out recently and said that the Labour Party will always support self-identification in relation to gender and sex. And that's the moment in which I thought to myself, he knows he's never going to win and he's completely given up because why else would you say something so, which to most people is so preposterous if you weren't just preaching to the choir? Well, uh, not merely preposterous. It was preposterous five years ago, uh, but now, because I think of all the, 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 the all, all, all these woke issues, all these identitarian issues uh, are self-contradictory. And you can pull them apart, you know, just by tugging on the thread and the whole thing falls apart. And, and the one which is falling apart first is, uh, is the transgender stuff. Yeah. And I don't think anyone signs. I just don't think anyone signs up to it. The, the, the transgender people I know don't sign up to it. <laughs> you know, uh, no one signs up to that stuff. And it's enraged the feminists. And I feel some pleasure in that <laughs> because I think the feminists fucking deserve it, frankly, if I'm honest. Because many of the things which feminists... It's like Suzanne Moore complaining about being, you know... Kicked off the, kicked off the. Where, where was she working? The, the Guardian. The, the Guardian. Um, you know, she's been. She tried to have me sacked for, for for writing hateful things. Well, you've written hateful things now, and you're sacked. <laughs> How do you feel, mate? You know, these are the people. Some of the feminists are the people who've dug the very road upon which the transgender lobby has driven its gaily coloured cart. Um, you know, uh, so so I. I have a limited sympathy for some of the feminists, even though obviously I agree with most most feminist aims. But but nobody, I don't think, now agrees with 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 the transgender stuff. I, I, it's just gone. Do you have more sympathy with lesbians who seem to be becoming extinct as a result of what's going on over the past few years? You know, the, uh, uh, and yeah, they are. They, 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 it's we're going to have to have a kind of reintroduction program like they've done with red kites <laughs> in the Chilterns. And one day we may see lesbians flying <laughs> above the hills of southern England looking for carrion. Um, I feel a bit, yes, I, I feel a bit sorry for lesbians. Uh, most of my lesbian friends are the most doughty uh, opponents of the more extreme transgender movement. Uh, uh, and they are infuriated by it. And as you rightly say, they're becoming extinct. But they're not the only ones who are becoming extinct. Women are becoming extinct. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah. You know, they yeah. are getting rid of women. They're getting rid of women in a biological sense, but they're also getting rid of women, A, obviously, as we know, in a sporting sense, in the, you know, pretty soon, I may actually transgender and see if I can get in the England ladies' football team. <laughs> you know, because they're bloody useless and it shouldn't <laughs> be too hard. Uh, but but more and more, more and more sporting titles are won by blokes who are competing against women. Mm-hmm. But they're also being removed. You know, uh, when the Labour Party decides that preference will be given to 
uh, people from the transgender community uh, uh, for shortlists. It's the women and black people who suffer. Yeah. Women and black people. Everything they do <laughs> is paradoxical and fucked up. <laughs> it is, but I mean it genuinely. Everything they do is self-contradictory. Mm. There is no sense to it. Um, so they're also making women uh, 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 obsolete. So you've described very well the way in which Blair, Mandelson and all the rest started to screw things up and, and drag the Labour Party into this kind of neoliberal direction. But one of the great ironies of, of recent times is that under Jeremy Corbyn, who was supposed to rescue the Labour Party from its neoliberal phase and turn it, into a, turn it back into a party of ordinary people, what actually happened is that it became more out of touch. And one of my favourite statistics is that um, if you look at the breakdown of the Labour membership under Corbyn, it was even more middle class than it was under Tony Blair. So how do you account for the way in which the Corbynista Labour Party uh, lost working class voters even more thoroughly than the neoliberal Blairite Party did? What do you think was their key failing in that front? I think the key failing was uh, was on the identitarian stuff, but particularly patriotism. Mm. Uh, I think people, working class people, particularly the people in general, don't want to vote for a party which which loathes the country it lives in, <laughs> despises its history, despises everything it's done. That being said, one one slight kind of amendment. I think that the McDonald's stuff. Uh, some of the McDonald's stuff in the 2019 manifesto, just from speaking to people in the Northeast where I was out canvassing for the SDP and so on, um, was very popular. Uh, the nationalization, the taxation, nationalize the grouse moors. You know, I was absolutely bang on with that myself. I think some of the financial stuff really did appeal to working-class voters. And what poor Keir's done in attempting to make Labour more electable is ditch the financial stuff and keep the fucking knee bending. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you do that? You know, uh, so he'll lose more. Yeah. Um, okay, so sticking with Labour for a moment, we've, uh, well, broadening it out to politics in general, there's going to be a general election, a, a by-election in Batley and Spen soon, which I think is going to be incredibly important, not least uh, because if Labour loses, it will be another sign of their general decline. <laughs> yes. But also, it, well, when, hopefully when. No, not well, hopefully, not hopefully. Sorry, Brendan. Uh, if, you, if your guys, if your select guys, your select audience tonight uh, wants to go down the bookies, Labour won't win. They won't come second. They won't come second, Brendan. They will be beaten by George's George Galloway's yeah. Workers' Party. Yeah, and, and 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 they will be beaten easily by George Galloway's Workers' Party. They will come third. Uh, you know, <laughs> George will sweep up every. I was speaking to a guy up there uh, a couple of days ago because uh, obviously we're we're working in the constituency as well. We, we'll get a few hundred. You know, we've got a good candidate, but. Uh, uh, I was talking to someone who knows the, the Muslim community in Batley and Spend very, very well. Every single one is going to be voting for Galloway that he knew of. Every single one. So the independent who took 6,000 votes off the Tories last time isn't standing and is urging people to vote Tory. Galloway's standing. She'll be lucky to save a deposit, Brendan. Mm. You know? Mm. This is worse than Hartlepool. Mm. I read a, a typically complacent piece by David Bush, who rather law, um, airily said, oh, this isn't Hartlepool. Labour has a much, much better chance here. Labour will romp home here. You haven't been out of Westminster, mate. You mm. don't know what you're fucking talking about. You don't have a clue. And, and they will lose. I, I, I guarantee I would virtually stake my life on it, such that it is. I think one of the most important issues in Batley and Spen has got to be the Batley grammar school teacher controversy, because this is such an extraordinary state of affairs. And the fact that people aren't talking about it more is even more extraordinary. A school teacher still in hiding, fearing for his life, 
crushed, according to his own father, because he showed his school kids a picture of Muhammad during a perfectly legitimate religious education class. What do you think is driving that kind of cowardice, where not only do we have his school turning against him, the teaching unions failing to stand by him, but now we have candidates in Batley and Spen who are openly avoiding this central question of whether teachers in that constituency are free to teach their kids what they want to teach them. There are 16 candidates standing in Batley and Spen, um, a few fascists, um, and the usual nutters. Uh, Only one party out of that 16 is saying anything about uh, Batley Grammar School and the appalling treatment meted out to the teacher there and that's the social democrats we are the only ones and we've made it our main the main plank of our policy that this is an election about freedom of speech and what should happen in this country you know that we shouldn't have people going into hiding in this country because they're scared of freedom of speech we are the only ones doing it the labor party the labor party candidate is desperately attempting to cozy up to the muslim community the Tory candidate wouldn't dare say anything. Local councillor wouldn't dare say anything. So the two main parties, Labour and Tory, there's this massive issue there. Exactly as one of your, I, I just saw one of the questions come up from one, one of the viewers saying, you know, we've had this in France. Yes, that's exactly it. This is our France moment. You know, here's a case where a teacher has been, is still in hiding, and two other teachers as well, by the way. Uh, as as well, Uh, and uh, been given very little support by the union um, uh, and is having no purchase whatsoever in this election, apart from a minor party such as ours, you know? Uh, It's shocking. It's shocking. And it's, it's, but it's predictable. You know, they're scared. They're scared of doing, they're scared of upsetting the wrong people. Hi, it's Fraser here, producer of The Brendan O'Neill Show. Have you ever taken the time to actually read the fine print that appears when you start browsing in incognito mode? It says that your activity might still be visible to your employer, your school, or your internet service provider. So how can they even call it incognito? If you really want to stop people from seeing the sites you visit, you need to do what I do and use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you've used Wi-Fi at a coffee shop, a hotel, or even at your parents' house. Without ExpressVPN, every site you visit could be logged by the admin of that network. And that's still true even when you're in incognito mode. Even worse, your home internet provider, whether it's BT, Virgin Media, TalkTalk, can also see and record all of your browsing data. In the US, they're legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers. ExpressVPN is an app that encrypts all of your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that everything you want to stay private actually stays private. ExpressVPN works on all your devices and is incredibly easy to use. The app literally has one button. You tap it to connect and your browsing activity is secure from prying eyes. So stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash brendan. Use our link at expressvpn.com slash Brendan to get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Brendan to learn more. This is a continuation, of course, of the obsession with Islamophobia, this notion that anyone who criticizes Islam or d- demeans Muhammad or, or whatever else they might describe it as, is being phobic, is being prejudiced, is punching down. Why do you think that idea, the idea of Islamophobia, has such a grip on certain sections of society to the extent that they are scared of standing up for a public servant whose only crime was to teach kids about blasphemy in a religious education class? Because it's part of the same paradoxical universe in which they live and which somehow they manage to square the circle. So they will be uh, furious about any notion of Islamophobia, but equally furious about any notion of homophobia. <laughs> and, and so, of course, 
you know, they will be enraged uh, if a uh, if an Ulster Unionist baker refuses to ice someone's cake. But when you're pushed off the roof of a building in Tehran, they couldn't give a fuck. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, this is the point. It's an important point because it gets to the heart of why the middle-class liberal Brian Pensant left is so authoritarian and so intent upon closing everybody down. It's because their arguments make no sense mm. once you tie them all together. And as soon as, as I say, as soon as you pull up one strand, it all falls apart. So they cannot bear being gainsaid. Um, incidentally, on the Batley thing, uh, I was talking to George Galloway the other night I get on with George very well. We we have to park a few things. <laughs> Israel, for example. We, we, we don't talk much about Israel. Um, and he said, Labour's not going to get any votes here. They're just, there aren't enough middle-class people from Islington living here. Mm. You know, they're, 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 and that's what it is. Yeah. They are lost. Those votes, you know, whatever Keir thinks, and I do like him, actually, um, Partly for sentimental reasons, I don't know really why. Maybe because he's called Keir. Uh, he's not going to get those votes back. They are never, ever, ever coming back because they can't be brought back because he would alienate the rest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going to come on to the audience questions very shortly, but I want to. It would be remiss of me not to ask you first about the Conservative Party, given that they are running the country at the moment, and. Um, I want to ask you what you think. You mentioned earlier on that there are some members of the, some leaders of the Conservative Party who are pushing back against wokeness to a certain extent. Liz, Liz Truss, Priti Patel, and maybe Boris Johnson. But what do you think when you hear Boris Johnson say things like, don't boo the knee, or when he talks about at the G7 about building back in a gender neutral fashion, which is completely meaningless? Do, is, do you well, think that's his wife that. speaking? <laughs> I thought he was taking the piss. I mean, it's the sort of thing I'd have said if I'd been invited. We're going to build back in a gender, gender neutral. I mean, it's utterly meaningless. It, it, it's pointless. And I think, I think uh, at least I, I'm not a great fan of Boris, but I think he knew it was meaningless. And I, I think he, he knew, I, I, think, I think he knew what he was doing. Um, uh, as for the taking the knee stuff, I think he was a bit fucked. I think he had the Football Association on his back and, you know, knew that we all wanted to enjoy the Euros and was just trying to be placatory. I, I, I kind of absolve him from that. I don't absolve him from being a, a dilatory buffoon, uh, but I do absolve him from that a bit. I'd be far happier if Dominic Cummings was still there. Because Dominic's not a Tory. Mm. <laughs> you know, he's... Uh, He's probably one of us, in, 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 as close as you can get. Um, uh, but there's also a, a, a clear-eyed vision there and a, a dislike of of, uh, of wokeness. I think it's difficult. I think there's a bit of a battle going on in the Conservative Party. Uh, there are those, such as Pretty, such as Liz Truss, such as Kerry Badenoch, interestingly, the women and the ethnic minorities, you know? Mm-hmm. These are the people who know, who take a very, very strong line on, on identitarian politics. And one just hopes that in the end they have their way. It would look at the moment, despite the prevalence of Princess Nutnut uh, in number 10, uh, that, that, that they still do kind of have their way. In that the, the music which is coming out of, of government at the moment with, with the Stonewall stuff, uh, and that's going across loads of government departments. Yeah. I've, I've, I've never been more happy since, you know, um, since we beat Germany 5-1 than learning that Stonewall was being evicted from every one of its single redoubts within government. Um, so I th- uh, that's quite a big move. And it's also, it's, I think also uh, a, a few London colleges have booted out Stonewall as well. So I think there is a turn there. I think there's a change there. And if Boris has got any sense, he will see that this is quite a big movement you know the votes in Harlepool the vote in 2019 and the vote which is coming up in Batley isn't simply about Brexit even if Brexit is one of the symptoms of this 
sort of anti-working class malaise which both the Tories and Labour and the Liberal Democrats all got themselves into. I, I think if he plays it right, and he seems to have the, notion, the right notions in this direction, then we may begin to see a bit of a rollback. I hope. I hope. Before I leap into the questions from uh, viewers, uh, what, I- what are your views on Boris's extension of the lockdown restrictions? Because it seems to me that there's an element of cowardice now creeping into government. They're so nervous about contradicting SAGE or um, doing anything that could be held against them by Labour or by The Guardian or by anyone else. And, And this fear of new variants, as if we are ever going to crush all variants and be COVID free in the future, which strikes me as a bit of a fantasy. What is going on with the this refusal to throw society open to normality? I think it's a lack of confidence and a lack of intelligence in government, and they feel themselves enthralled to the scientists, such as Susan Mitchie, who says we should wear masks forever and socially distance forever. Well, you know, possibly if I was married to Susan Mitchie, I would agree with her. Uh, <laughs> stay as far away as I possibly could. Um, but uh, but uh, at the moment, that's what they're doing. Uh, they, they are they are following a monomaniacal mindset from 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 scientists where actually it's a political decision and it ought to be made a political decision now you know if you remember brendan i was i was quite pro lockdown uh, Mm. a year ago Uh, i thought we don't know what we're dealing with this seems to be a sensible move i don't mind it uh but i would to echo primo levy you know on june 21st if not now when Mm. Um, because there is no when. There will always be a new variant. There will always be a new variant, which is dangerous. Um, As soon as July the 19th has come along, uh, the kids will be going back to school pretty soon after that. You know, this will, we will be in, it will be Groundhog Day. We will be in the same position next year. We have to, we have to make a change. And, uh, you know, I've just been watching, uh, Hungary playing football in front of 61,000 people in Budapest uh, and virtually no one wearing masks. Uh, and very sadly, Hungary lost uh, to that thick-necked boar, Christian Ronaldo and all, all the rest of them. And Pepe. <laughs> God, I can't stand Portugal. Uh, anyway, uh, that's not the point. Um, that, that, that it was so uplifting, mm. uplifting to hear those supporters. And it changed the nature of the game. Uh, it was a much more exciting game as a consequence of the players played differently. We have to get back to something approaching that. And I, I, I don't think it's incivistic to say this anymore. Maybe last year you and I would have disagreed about this. I'm afraid to say that by now, my wife told me a year ago we'll be here in a year's time, and she was right. Um, uh, and I think we really need to get ourselves out of it very, very quickly indeed. Yeah. Uh, because there is, it is bad enough being run by politicians, but for Christ's sake, we never want to be run by doctors, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, they see one thing, and they will never let it go. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Rod, I'm going to fire some questions at you from the audience. Uh, the first one, I'm really keen to hear your views on this. Uh, Lindsay asks, what are your first impressions of GB News? Right. Well, I was on it last night, yeah. Uh, actually. Yeah. Uh, I, but I was a bit pissed, so I, I didn't <laughs> take all of it in. Um, first impressions are, I wish they had chosen someone other than Helen Keller to do the sound and set design. Uh, I think that would have been you know, <laughs> someone different. Um, the sets don't look terribly good. The sound doesn't sound terribly good. I think it's awkward at the moment, but it's bound to be awkward. It's a brand new television station. I don't know how much money is behind it. Um, I think an awful lot of it is teasing problems, which will be overcome in the first, uh, after after a month or two. I have to say um, that, you know, when I first heard Times Radio, uh, I was less than impressed. But over time, it's got better and better and better other than Hugo Rifkind, obviously. Um, but it, it's got better. Um, and I suspect that, that 
that GB News will get better as well. I think one thing Andrew's got to do, what Andrew Neil's got to do, is stop straddling the fence a bit. It's either going to be a centre-right news programme, news, news channel, a bit like Fox, or it's going to be a neutral news channel in which you hear right-wing voices in a way that you do not on the BBC, but you also hear left-wing voices in a way which actually sometimes on the BBC you don't hear. You don't hear those left-wing voices on the economy. I would prefer the latter, but either way, you can't have both. You know, you've got to choose one or the other. Okay, Callum, Callum wants an update on peak wank. So last time you and I spoke, you said that we were reaching peak wank. There was only so much wank, i.e. absolutely yeah. crazy nonsense yeah. people could handle. What's, what's your latest view? Have we reached peak wank? Have we passed it? No, oh, you see, the trouble is, uh, I think I probably ejaculated too soon when <laughs> answering that question before. Um, I would like to say that, yes, we are a peak wank. I think sort of these years, you know, from 2019 to about 2024, this is a cultural battleground, and I think that we will win, and I think things are changing. But there will be more madness to come. You know, I, I hadn't envisaged, when I talked about peak wank, the knee-bending shite. Mm. You know, that, that hadn't occurred to me. But they only got away with that because there was no one around. You know, never forget that. There was no one around. Mm. We have a question from Dave. Always good to have a question from someone called Dave, who asks... Are you being too easy on Keir Starmer? And I actually had a similar thought when you were speaking. I mean, you're right. I'm, I'm sure you're right. He's a nice guy. Jeremy Corbyn may have been a nice guy too, possibly. Um, are you being too soft on him? Do, what, what, what drives your view of, uh, as, of Starmer as being a, a generally nice guy, even though he's making colossal <laughs> mistakes? Um, I think he seems to be relatively decent when it comes to I think he was relatively decent over COVID in the early days of it. I think there's a there's a general niceness about him. But, yeah, I mean, the main reason I'm nice about it is because I think he is well and truly fucked. I genuinely think he there is no hope for him. <laughs> you know, I think there, there would be more hope in a way uh, if Rebecca Rongdaly took over the, the, the party and shifted it as far to the left as you could go. Uh, and then at least, you know, by about 2028, you could easily see a coalition between Labour, the Green Party, the Lib Dems, the SNP, uh, which could conceivably win an election. You know, you, you're, except I still think they're all fighting for the same round about 20, 25% of the vote. I feel sorry for Keir Starmer. It's the truth. Um, and yeah, maybe that makes me makes me uh, too easy, too easy on him. Yeah, sure. Okay, all right. So this is the final question. Um, I'm actually going to mash together two different questions, and it might give you an opportunity to talk about the SDP or to talk about your political views more broadly at the moment. Um, Karen asks, is there room in the UK for another mainstream political party? And then Theresa asks, uh, a lot of the, uh, Theresa says rather, a lot of the ideas that we're discussing tonight, there is broad agreement for them in society. Yeah. But how can we tie that together? How can we manifest that? How can we make sure that there is a space in society where these kinds of thoughts have expression? And I guess where the 20% that you're talking about don't dominate political life. Yeah, uh, well, the, the short answer is proportional representation. Because it's, it's you know, virtually impossible for, for, for a party like the Social Democratic Party to make a breakthrough, to cut through, you know, uh, at a, at a by-election where there are 16 people standing, no one's heard of the SDP. Uh, we, we've talked to them about our industrial policy and everything. How, how, how on earth do you break through? You cannot do it. But at the same time, I don't think there's a future for Lawrence Fox and a party which, which sort of is all over the place and just says reform or reclaim. or I, I, I think all that's gone as well. But I think there is room in, 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 in the country for a party which represents working-class people, which has a sense of tradition and history, uh, which is perhaps conservative on social issues but uh, left-wing on, on economic issues. I, th I, think, 
I think that seems to be what the opinion polls say people want, uh, which is why I'm in the SDP. But until you join, Brendan, and Baroness Fox joins, is, that, is it Baroness? Baroness Fox, yes. Baroness, Baroness Fox, fucking hell. Uh, <laughs> until, until Baroness Fox joins and, and, and all of you guys watching, we can build it up from a, a tiny party. We, we've increased by about tenfold in the last couple of years, uh, and we're now standing in all elections that come along. We came very close to beating the convicted sex offender in the Hartlepool by-election, which cheered me up no end. But we need help. We need, you need people. You need commitment. More than anything else, we, we need money. Uh, because I don't see any of the other parties doing that. I don't see... The Conservatives are to a degree in that, you know, if you've got North, they have delivered jobs or they're promising to deliver jobs. And, of course, they are socially conservative sometimes. But, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't trust them as far as you could throw them, to be honest. Um, so I think there is room for another party, but it's, it's, a, it's a long, hard slog to make it work. Rod Little, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.